we may not adopt the world's moral system, neither are we able to relate to them because we have not really immersed our thinking in, in the Holy Scriptures, the revelation of God. And if anyone ought to be able to outthink our culture, it is Christians who have the Word of God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a study in the book of Daniel. Pastor Brogy began with an overview of the entire book, and as we pick up, he notes that liberal scholars have sought to refute the vast amount of prophecy found in this book, saying the book was written after the fact and labeling the book historical rather than prophetic. But as we will see, evidence shows Daniel was written at the time of Judah's exile into Babylon, thus affirming the author and the nature of this book. So you have these critics of the Word of God, and again, they will criticize and tear apart Daniel because of the specificity of his prophecies. And what will they do? They will say he had to have written after the fact that he's writing history, not prophecy. Jesus calls him not Daniel the historian, but Daniel the prophet. And we will see, even with the position they take, as late as they date this letter, there is still prophecy that is fulfilled, but they in their ignorance missed it. There's a supernatural dimension to the Word of God. And some people don't like it. Listen, there's no prophecy in the Hindu Scriptures. There's no prophecy in the Muslim Scriptures. There's no prophecy in the Book of Mormon. Only the Bible, the Word of God, because God alone knows the future. And so they don't like it, and they cut up the Word of God and burn it in their minds, either because of its prophetic nature or its miraculous nature. And I would hate to stand before the living God, having compromised what God said because I didn't like it. And so now we have two Presbyterian churches in our town that say homosexual marriage is okay, and a Baptist church where the pastor won't take a position. I don't want to take a position because it's too, too controversial. He's taken his position. I would hate to stand before the living God, not having preached the Word of God as the inerrant, authoritative, inspired Word of God. But that's what this arrogant King Jehoiakim did that he was guilty of. Now, you have to understand, as you can see on this chart, that Nebuchadnezzar, when he comes to deal with the Jewish people, does so in three phases. He first comes down, as the chart shows, in 605 B.C., when he carries away Jehoiakim and took some of the golden vessels out of the temple. Now, at that time, he takes Daniel and his three friends. So Daniel and his three friends are carried away in 605 B.C. When he comes down... He's not King Nebuchadnezzar, he's General Nebuchadnezzar, and his father is the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And while he is seizing the city, he discovers that his daddy dies. So he makes a deal with the Jewish people, and he puts a, a vassal king there under his thumb, and he takes some hostages for security, and that's when Daniel and his three friends come. And by the way, as you read the opening verses of the book right before Daniel, Ezekiel, you discover that Ezekiel the prophet is also taken during this time. So Ezekiel and Daniel are contemporaries. A second time, he comes down in 597 B.C. And of course, the city is seized. 
Uh, and at this point, he takes 10,000 Jews, including uh, uh, this king's son, Jehoiachin, who becomes very important in the Bible. He's called by a couple of different names, but God puts a curse on Jehoiachin. And he says that no king out of, is going to come out of his lineage that God will bless. And of course, uh, that becomes critical when we come to the virgin birth. Lay that aside, that's another sermon. The third siege finally comes when he has this guy Zedekiah, who is a vassal king appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. And he comes down and Zedekiah thinks, oh, you know, I'm going I'm to deal with this guy. And he doesn't put up with it. And he plucks his eyes out. Now, the prophet Ezekiel said that Zedekiah was going to go to the land of Babylon, but he wouldn't see it. And God fulfills it precisely. You discover that Nebuchadnezzar is a ruthless king, likes to take off people's heads, likes to pluck out eyes. And another prophet says he likes to roast his generals who failed him. Not a nice guy, but God has great plans. And if he can save a Nebuchadnezzar, which we will see, he can save absolutely anyone. So this third and final time he comes down, he destroys the temple. And so we're going to have a rebuild of the temple, what we call the Solomonic, uh, excuse me, we're going to have a rebuild of the temple. The Solomonic temple is destroyed, but another temple is going to be built. And so you have a guy like Ezra who comes along. You have another prophet who says, look, you're living in paneled houses, but God's house is in disrepute. Get your priorities in order. The wall is going to be destroyed at this point. So you have a guy like Nehemiah who comes along who wants to rebuild the wall. And so at this point, he takes away the remaining Jews. He leaves a, a, a few people that are impoverished because they're no threat to Babylon. All right, so that's kind of where we're going. So Daniel is taken here in 605 BC. He's a youth. He's just a young man. And uh, he's taken away as an adolescent from everything where he would find a sense of security, his family, his friends, and his religious training. And we read in verse 20 that this pagan king, when he comes, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. 10 times better than anything that Babylon could produce. Now this morning, I want to ask and answer a question. What is it that distinguished these young men? What were the qualities that they had that allowed them to make an impact on their culture? Well, there in your note-taking outline, I want to underscore three truths about these young men whom God mightily used. Let's begin with the captives who were taken. The captives who were taken. In verse 3, they are described. It says, And the king ordered Asphanaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel including some of the royal family and, and of the nobles. So this reference here to the sons of Israel, or if you're using the old King James, it says children of Israel. Uh, the, the Hebrew text says sons of Israel. They use the term children of Israel as an interpretive decision so that you don't confuse them with the northern kingdom. So generally, or initially, they're all called sons of Israel. When the kingdom splits, generally the northern kingdom is called the sons of Israel. But occasionally, the whole, even the southern kingdom, as in this case, are called sons of Israel. Why? Because he's referring to their Abrahamic descent, ultimately through Jacob or Israel. 
But when you see the term children of Israel, don't think of little children, because if you look in verse 4, it's modified by another word. It's modified by the word yeladim, youths. And it's a specific Hebrew word that refers to a young teenager. And so we're going to discover that he's around 15 years old, Daniel and his friends, when they're taken away. And they're not just from any family. Nebuchadnezzar went after what he would have considered to have been the best amongst the Jewish people. He goes to the royal family. So Daniel and his friends are princes of sorts. And he's hoping to take from the royal family the best the Jews have to offer to brainwash them through a three-year course and to make them leaders in his kingdom. Now, we learned something about Daniel and his friends that distinguished them from all the other youths that were taken. Three characteristics, three traits. First of all, these captives were physically competent. They were physically competent. We read here in the beginning of verse 4, youths in whom was no defect who were good-looking. Yus, Yaladim, they're around 15, in whom was no defect. In other words, they were in excellent physical condition. Let me take a little aside here. Sometimes as Christians today, we downplay the importance of the physical too much. We quote a verse like 1 Timothy 4, verse 5, where Paul says, bodily exercise profits little. And we say, that's my life verse. But listen, he said that in a day that was non-mechanized. Everything you did, whether it's washing the clothes or walking to the market or saddling up a horse was work. There was a built-in exercise program. And of course, he also said in a day where the Greeks and the Romans literally worshipped the body. But we must never, ever forget that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Suppose you give me a brand new leather satchel for Christmas to carry my Bible to and from work. And I am grateful to you for what you did, and I invite you over to my house for one of those meals for which my wife is famous. And after the meal, I take the garbage off the plates, and I put them in my brand new leather satchel. You say, what? But that is Paul's point to the Corinthians. Our body is like an expensive leather satchel. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and so we are not to prostitute it, morally, nor are we to abuse it physically. You know, I meet Christians who say, oh, Pastor Carl, I don't have any extra time, any extra time for exercise or rest. I'm just so busy. You know, after all, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Oh, really? I didn't know that either were to be an option. God doesn't want you to burn out. He doesn't want you to rust out. He wants you to live out. You say, but the devil never takes a vacation. Well, the devil is not your model. Jesus Christ is. And he said in the Gospels that we are to come apart to a quiet place. There's a time for rest. Vance Havner used to say it so well. He said, if you don't come apart, you'll come apart. And yet the sad thing is that when our health is in its zenith, in our 20s and 30s and 40s, many of us are abusing our bodies, the very instrument that God has given us in which to live out and to carry out his ministry through us. I realize people have physical problems because we live in a fallen world. But many of the physical problems we face, we bring upon ourselves. But notice also they are described as youths in whom was no defect, who were good looking. The Net Bible says they were handsome. The Southern Baptist Bible says they were uh, good-looking. 
Um, well, you say, that counts me out, Pastor. Well, I think actually the King James captures it best. The King James rendered it that they were well-favored. The Hebrew literally says they were pleasing in appearance. Now understand, in the Hebrew mind and in God's mind, and all you have to read is the book of Proverbs for an example, the external and the internal are inseparably linked. Some Christian people maybe lack the classic features that the world would deem as beauty, but they are very attractive because of their countenance. Other Christians I meet, they'd make a good cover for the book of Lamentations. <laughs> you say, well, pastor, what's the connection? There's a big connection in the Word of God. There's a connection between the internal and the external. I read a book years ago entitled The Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Oyken, and a quote in there caught my attention. Let me read it to you. He said, the best argument for Christianity is Christian." Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But their strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyous, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent and consecration, when they are narrow, uninformed and repressive, this Christianity dies a thousand deaths. I hate to say it, but some Christians are just downright depressing to be around. And unfortunately, they do more damage by their negative, critical spirit for the kingdom of God than they do good. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, what kind of an image do I project from the inside? And we also need to ask ourselves, what kind of an image do I project from the outside? The way you dress, is it chaste? Is it God-honoring? Are your clothes clean and up-to-date? You say, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, God said, you know, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Exactly my point. Man does look at the outward appearance. And that's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 said, I've become all things to all men that I might win some. He was willing to adapt his clothing. He was willing to lay aside certain dietary preferences and other things in order that he might win people to Jesus Christ. You know, over the years, I've met, that there are, I've met Christians to whom some a lost world is just turned off and repelled by, and other people that they're very attracted to. And sometimes the difference is because of what's going on the inside as well as what is going on the outside. So here in verse 4, we're told that Daniel and his friends were youths in whom there was no defect, who were good looking. They were physically competent, uh, but in addition, I want you to see these captives were mentally keen. They were mentally keen. Three statements point this out to me here in verse 4. Notice, youths in whom was no defect who are good-looking, showing intelligence, that's the first one, in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, that's the second one, and discerning knowledge, that's the third one. First, they were good learners. They are showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. What does that mean? Well, among other things, it implies they were teachable. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, Timothy, when you're looking for other pastors whom you might pour your life into, there are two things that you should look for. Number one, faithfulness. And number two, teachability. Frankly, as I disciple others, I can care less very often what a person knows. I am interested if he wants to learn. Whether it's teaching someone the Bible or how to share their faith. 
Look, if someone knows everything, you can't help them as a pastor. These guys had an aptitude to learn. Verse 4, translated here, showing intelligence. The Net Bible says they were well-versed. The Christian Standard says they were suitable. The ESV says they were skillful. The, The Hebrew verb actually has the idea to succeed. They had a winner's attitude, not a loser's limp. They had a desire to learn. They were good learners. They were teachable. I was a campus minister many years ago at Duke University where my wife ministered to the women and I ministered to the men and women alike. And one parent's weekend, I'll never forget a dad who came up to me and said, what on earth did you do to my son? Ever since he became a part of this religious group, his grades have shot straight up. I said, well, I didn't do anything. God did something. He had a second birth. And during my time in campus ministry, I could often show a change in a student's grades from the day he became a believer. Why is that? Because so many students are at the university today for a four-year all-expense-paid vacation. They're interested in just scraping by academically so they can party the rest of the time at their parents' expense. But when you get saved, you have a new outlook on life. And I wonder how many of you are on the cutting edge in your field or your profession. Or if you're a mom, you're on the cutting edge of raising those children in the home. You see, so many of us are sloppy and spongy in our thinking. And while we may not adopt the world's moral system, neither are we able to relate to them because we have not really amassed our thinking, uh, immersed our thinking in, in the Holy Scriptures, the revelation of God. And if anyone ought to be able to outthink our culture, it is Christians who have the Word of God. Paul the Apostle is a great example up there in Mars Hill, there in Athens. He quotes one of their own poets and then uses that as a springboard in which to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we find here that they were showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, but notice also they're described as being endowed with understanding. That second characteristic speaks of their mental acuity. They're sharp. The ESV says they were endowed with knowledge. The Hebrew text says literally they were knowing knowledge. In other words, not only were they good learners, they were good thinkers. They were able to take whatever information they were getting and to put it through the sieve of Scripture and to respond accordingly. God tells us that we are to make a defense for the hope that is within us. Notice the third statement. They are discerning knowledge. Another translation says they are understanding knowledge. Another says they are having keen insight. Another says they are perceptive. I think the NASB captures the best by using the word discerning. It's a rare quality that today we call judgment. They could think clearly. They could think intelligently. And it was all tempered by the Word of God. They had the ability to take it through the grid of Scripture. May I remind you that in the New Testament, God's people are called disciples. Mathetes is the Greek word. It means a learner. We ought to be able to learn the truth of God's Word, and that is what is going to make you truly effective for relating to this world in a way that will win them to Jesus Christ. And it has nothing to do with education and everything to do with your knowledge of the Bible. I meet some who are 35 who have a PhD after their names who are dead in the head. And I meet others who are in their 60s and 70s who barely could graduate from high school if they did it all and they are much alive. 
What is the difference? Their commitment to the Word of God. And so these young men were trained in their home. Where did they get this education? In their home, as Moses had given them his parents generations before this instruction. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love Him with all your heart, mind, and strength. How so? By teaching your children in the way, in all of the different places of life. That's how they are going to get it, and that's what their parents did. So he selects these youths from the loyal royal family. Why? Because they're physically competent. They're mentally keen. Third, I want you to see that these captives were socially adept. They were socially adept. Now, in the latter part of verse 4, we read that these young men had the ability to serve in the king's court. Notice, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. Serving in the king's court. These youths were by no means out of place in this royal setting. They were not an embarrassment to themselves, to others, and certainly not to the king. What a stark contrast with so many of the youth in our day. I mean, can you see some of the kids of our day serving in the White House who are glued to their uh, phones and other electronics or who dress like you know they live in the gutter? These guys were a breed apart. And I'm so proud of so many of the Christian youth in this church who are not followers, but leaders. I meet a lot of Christians who are socially inept But God calls us to be socially flexible, whether we're in ministry, in the ghetto, or in the White House, it is to make no difference at all. Now, I know people take the social graces to an extreme. When I was growing up, my mom would always quote Amy Vanderbilt. Well, Amy Vanderbilt says, and you know, should you take your spoon when you have your soup and ladle it towards you or away from you? Well, Amy says away. I don't think it makes a big bit of difference. Uh, in fact, she ended up jumping out a window and killing herself. I don't think it helped her too much. But listen, we need to be socially flexible. And you will only be socially flexible when you are not consumed with yourself. But when you have a servant's heart and you think about other people, they're physically competent, they're mentally clean, they're socially adept. Those are the captives who were taken. Second, let's think about the crises, plural, that they faced. The crises came on three levels. First of all, they faced an authority crisis. There was an authority crisis. Look at the end of verse 4. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So he enrolls them in this curriculum to indoctrinate them in the Chaldean, the Babylonian culture. Now, archaeologists have dug up thousands of clay tablets that tell us about this pagan culture. A lot of their archaeology is being destroyed systematically by ISIS. But fortunately, what we have, we have uh, categorized and put in the libraries of the world. They were people who were superstitious. They were into astrology, into pagan philosophies. They thought it was all scholarship. And so these guys are going to face an authority crisis. Who's right? The Babylonian way of thinking or the Word of God? And it comes back all the way to the Garden of Eden when Satan says to that first couple, has God said? And really the same is going on in our day. We have young people who go to the secular universities where the professor's major goal is to destroy their faith, to discredit the authority of God's Word. People ask me all the time, should I send my child to a Christian university 
or a secular. It depends. If they're strong like Daniel and you've prepared them and they have steel on their spine, then they'll be able to stand in that kind of a culture. If they don't, then they will crumble. And so they face an authority crisis. Secondly, they face a morality crisis. We read here in verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. They've got a three-year scholarship, a free ride for everything they want, but it's not the kind of free ride that they would have elected. First, they're offered a pagan diet. Now, that's not the way, of course, the king saw it. He was offering him the same food that, they, that he ate. He thought they were doing him a big favor in allowing them to eat from the king's kitchen. Choice food. But this, of course, was a moral issue for these men. They were not interested in eating the king's meat. Why not? Because, number one, some of it would not be kosher. It would be unclean meat. It would be forbidden by the old covenant rules. And number two, it would have been dedicated to a pagan god, and they weren't interested. So there's an authority crisis, there's a morality crisis, but there's also an identity crisis. Look now, if you will, at verse 6. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now their Hebrew names reflect their Jewish heritage. Whenever you see a name with the word El in it, that's one of the names for God, or Ah as in Jehovah, that's also. And so Daniel, his name means God is my judge, Hananiah, it's the Hebrew word means Jehovah is gracious, Mishael, it means who is like God, Azariah, means Jehovah is my help. So what does he want to do? He wants to strip them of their religious worldview, of their Jewish heritage. And we're told in verse 7, then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. Don't confuse that with Belshazzar, who we're going to read about later in the book of Daniel. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So Asphenaz, the commander of the officials, gives all four of them four pagan names after their pagan gods. To Daniel, to Daniel, he gives him Belteshazzar, which is, of course, after the pagan god Baal. To uh, Shadrach, he, he names him uh, after the, the, the name Aku, another pagan, the moon god. To Meshach, after Shak, who was, of course, the, the goddess Shak. And then, of course, there's Abednego after the fire god Nego. The names given by the parents of these four men testified to their love of God. And though the Babylonians may have changed their names, they could not change their character. To listen again to today's study entitled, Daniel, a Man of Competence, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN1. Tomorrow we'll conclude our introduction to Daniel. Join us then as we search the scriptures.